Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Got an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? You're not alone. There are literally thousands of people out there with great podcast ideas for either their businesses or simply for entertainment, but they don't know the first thing about podcasting. The DBM Production Empire has been successfully producing high-quality podcasts since 2009 and has received millions of downloads. Yes, millions. And now the DVMPE has decided to pull back the curtain and offer their podcast production services to the rest of the world. Unlike some other podcast companies, our team will work with you from the creation of your podcast idea all the way to getting it released to the marketplace. We work with you in three different phases. The development phase, which includes getting your ideas to a workable action plan, the creation of your RSS feed, and if you don't have your own artwork already, we can help you with that too. Next is the hosting phase, which includes a safe place to launch and house your podcast episodes. And of course, the distribution phase, where we deliver your content to major podcast markets like iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, Podomatic, and many more. We'll do all of this for just $10 a month plus a one-time setup fee. So what are you waiting for? Call or email us for a free consultation today. The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the DVM Production Empire. That's how you know it's good. You're listening to the DVM Production Empire. Back with content. Millions of downloads. Taking the world by force. Join the Empire today at dvmpe.com. Groovy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the first episode of the Viable Human Project in 2020. All right. You guys got goals? We got goals. (laughs) (laughs) We're the number one health and fitness podcast uh, in the... In Darien. Yeah, in the the DuPage County area. (laughs) So we'll start off 2020 by recapping 2019. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, We got Dr. Hector here. Here I am, as always. Dr. Dan. Hey, how's it going? And I'm your layman, George. We should probably start this year the same way we started last year, by answering the most common questions asked on, is that Google or WebMD? This is uh, Google, yeah. Yeah. On the internet uh, regarding health in 2019. In the U.S. In the U.S. So uh, let's just get into it then. We did actually briefly look at some of the questions asked in uh, Spanish-speaking countries, and that was also fun. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's stay with the U.S. Yeah. All right. Number one, Mm. how to lower blood pressure. So yeah, uh, number one, and eventually when we get around to it, number eight, go pretty well hand in hand. We'll talk about number eight in a moment. Let's just just, uh, how to lower. Yeah. yeah. Number Uh, one, how to lower blood pressure. And and how to lower cholesterol. Yeah. Okay. So it's a conversation I I commonly have with patients in terms of, well, let's start with blood pressure specifically. First of all, high blood pressure. In order for somebody to actually be diagnosed with high blood pressure, they're supposed to have three separate readings that all show that they're chronically at an elevated uh, blood pressure, which these days the new uh, marker of high blood pressure for hypertension is uh, 130 over 90. Mm -hmm. That's considered to be uh, high blood pressure. It was uh, 140 over 90, but they recently lowered it, which, you know, you can go back and forth as far as why they did that. Uh, But the fact is right now it's 130 over 90. It's considered to be uh, hypertension. When I have conversations with patients about like their blood pressure being high, uh, oftentimes I'll start out by just asking, you know, why do you think your blood pressure is high? The fact of the matter is there are all kinds of reasons why it could be high. 
It could be due to a lack of sleep. It could be due to poor posture. It could be due to position you were in when your blood pressure was taken, stress levels, diet, lack of exercise, all kinds of reasons. But the fact of the matter is most people know that high blood pressure bad. We want to get it down. Mm -hmm. And so we got to think about how do we do that? So it's multifactorial, obviously, since there are several different factors that can actually cause high blood pressure. Like Dr. Dan was saying, this could be something that is correlated to something like high cholesterol. And generally speaking, you, you do have something that is going wrong if you have high blood pressure. And uh, usually it's something that can be controlled with lifestyle modification. Of course, there is drug therapy, but I feel like the lifestyle factors are kind of glossed over or people think that they're just too hard and uh, they kind of reason themselves out of uh, just not actually taking care of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think part of that is because, you know, there's, there's kind of always like I could take the pill. Whatever, whatever it happens to be. And there are a number of different high blood pressure medications. One of the biggest things that could be playing into high blood pressure is just being overweight. Mm-hmm. Obesity is, is a problem, especially in developed nations like the U.S. And um, this is something where it's like we actually have a first world problem. It's a, it's a problem of civilization. Um, and it's just like we have too much access to calorie rich and nutritionally poor food that hijacks our systems and causes us to, to get overweight, to have high blood pressure, to have high cholesterol, to have have high blood sugars and uh, all the inflammatory processes that come along with that. So although this is a multifactorial thing, it's like healthy lifestyle approach is usually going to be the the primary objective in lowering your blood pressure. And that could include stress management, like Dr. Dan was saying, even if it it might not be necessarily that uh, your your diet is out of order, but if you have a high stress lifestyle, you're not managing the stress, you're not sleeping well, that's going to be something that can play into creating a situation where you have hypertension and, and even high cholesterol. You got high inflammatory processes that are going on despite everything else. What type of diet would you typically associate with somebody who has high blood pressure? Uh, It's usually going to be something where there's a there's a high carbohydrate load and usually it's going to be processed carbs it's not going to be like they're eating too much fruit it's going to be they're eating simple sugar foods uh like like soft drinks processed foods in general any any sort of grain processed food so so we're talking about like corn wheat soy and you know if you pick a processed food Mm -hmm. unless you specifically are looking for something that excludes that it's probably in there so these things are high glycemic load a lot of times because they're grain based they're going to have a high lectin load or high high inflammatory protein load um and maybe inflammatory isn't necessarily the word uh, for, for these proteins, but there's something that, are, that is going to cause some sort of issue with our physiology. And then um, the other thing is they probably have a high omega-6 load in their diet. So processed oils, industrial oils, seed oils, um, these are things that cause inflammatory processes and, and can lead to, to issues like this. You said seed oils. We should also take into account vegetable oils. Mm-hmm. Just to well, I, said, that. I said seed oils, but if you think about it, like there's really no such thing as a vegetable oil. How many vegetables actually have oils that are squeezed? out of them yeah but they literally sell bottles of vegetable oil at grocery stores yes that's how they're labeled (laughs) but you know they they are actually seed oils um or or if they are something where it's i can't think of a single vegetable where they've extruded oil from yeah so then where are they getting the vegetable the oil from in vegetable oil they just well they just call it vegetable it's not actually a vegetable oil and they are seed oils yeah so they pull them from seeds Ah. um and but the but the problem is like these these oils are damaged from the get-go because they have a high heat extraction process yeah or a chemical extraction process, process, but whatever it is, they're, they're causing oxidation to the fats, and the fat is already bad before it even gets to you. Well, then, Hector, let me ask you a side question then. Go ahead. What kind of oil should I, what should I use to get that sear on my steak? Um, well, I mean, arguably, you may not have to sear your steak, <laughs> but I know it's delicious. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> the podcast is over. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, if you are going to, you know, use a cooking oil for, for a steak, it's like animal fats, 
generally yeah. are going to be your best option. And I mean, people use butter. That's a great option. Ghee, which is going to be clarified butter. Yeah. Those are two great options. I've seen Gordon Ramsay make an amazing steak with butter. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that would be probably the best answer, yeah. but I mean, you do have other options if you want. So butter, clarified butter, which is ghee, or if you want to use tallow. a, you can use beef tallow, yeah. um, you can use pork fat, you can use bacon fat, um, but lard. I mean, you can use lard, uh, Real lard. just, just pick an animal fat that is from a well-sourced, well-raised animal. So something that, you know, is, has had its natural diet has kind of lived a natural life where it's not enclosed in a pen mm-hmm. and and has just been overall healthy. Wild would be awesome. Yeah. Um, but uh but I mean like if you're gonna use a a a plant based oil, uh, probably like avocado oil but or coconut oil, but you you don't want to put that on steak. No. <laughs> so I'd, I'd go with butter. <laughs> I have used both coconut oil and avocado oil on steaks, and I personally, I like the taste. Oh, I know coconut on your steak? I've had that oh uh, a couple times, yeah, and I like it. I think, I think... Um, Go back to Samoa. Yeah. <laughs> I think coconut oil, um, it doesn't really have a coconut flavor. Yeah. I think it's more the aroma. Yeah. Well, with coconut oil, the thing is, like, with, um, so, like, the, the reason people use peanut oil and vegetable oil is because they have a high smoke point, right? Right. So you can get it to a really hot, uh, high level without it altering the taste of the oil or, or uh, you know, creating a lot of smoke. Yeah, you're basically just trying not to burn the oil. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's true, but, you know, like like I just said, it's yeah. like the, the oil is already damaged before you even put it into yeah. whatever. Yeah. So it's like you, you, you're you starting with a bad product to begin with. Yeah. It just has the illusion of being okay. All right. So then I'll just have the... <clears throat> it's better to be healthy than to have great steaks. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to put it that way, yeah. sure. All right. So let's go on to question number two. Yeah. Actually, could we address, since they go hand in hand, um, if we could skip to number eight, how to lower cholesterol? Well, let's skip to number eight. Yeah. Uh, so, you know what? I think I think that Dr. Dan has a, a pretty charged stance on this. I'm going to let him speak to this first. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a pretty charged stance on it for one. The last couple of times I've been to an, an MD for a checkup. Uh, first of all, the last couple of times, last three times I've gone to an MD for a checkup were not my choice. Uh, they were <laughs> something, something I did to appease my wife because my wife wanted me to go get a checkup. Basically, just make sure I'm not going to die on her all of a sudden. So <laughs> I want, I got my blood work done. And that was the only thing I wanted. Like, let me just get my blood work at least and take a look at that. And I just want the raw data, the raw numbers. I don't really care for the, um, the medical interpretation of the numbers because I can I can do it myself. Are you taking a picture of me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, no photos. Uh, <laughs> so I... In all three of those scenarios, I was told, you have high cholesterol. We need to work on getting you into a low-fat, low-fat, uh, low low-cholesterol diet. Uh, we're probably going to have to consider putting you on a statin drug to lower your cholesterol. And I'm always like, okay, can I see my blood work? I want to see the numbers, and I'll, I'll figure this out for myself. And I take the raw data. I do the calculations on it. And all three times, I've been either a very low or a low-risk category for cardiovascular disease based on peer-reviewed PubMed index literature on the subject. So my problem is every time I have a patient come to me and they're concerned about, you know, I was told I have high cholesterol and my doctor wants me to put me on these statins or they want to put me on this like cholesterol lowering diet and blah, 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 blah. My question is always, well, why do you want to lower your cholesterol? Is it actually a problem? Let's talk about this and like get calculations done and figure out whether or not it is. And oftentimes it's not really a problem for people, even though they were told it was by their MD or uh, some friend of theirs. Mm -hmm. So first of all, dietary cholesterol and dietary fat have almost nothing to do with your actual blood lipids, your blood cholesterol, uh, HDL, LDL, or triglycerides. I don't, it has almost nothing to do with that. Your triglycerides, which is more often than not the actual problem for people. Right. 
is more to do with your carbohydrate choices. Mm-hmm. Are you somebody who's eating like really simple processed carbs? Are you eating them in large quantities? Are you doing this on a regular basis? Well, chances are good. Your triglycerides are high. Your insulin sensitivity is poor. Your blood glucose is high. And you have a bad ratio of your LDL to HDL and probably a bad ratio of your triglycerides to your total cholesterol. And that is a problem. The ratios are what you need to pay attention to, not mm-hmm. the absolute numbers. Right. Because as happened to me, the last time I went to go get my blood work done, they called and the doctor told me, you have high cholesterol. I said, okay, what's the number? And she told me, oh, it's like 230. I was like, okay. And then she starts going into her spiel about how I need to get on like a basically a vegan diet yeah. and uh, get on a statin. I asked her, hold on, what is my HDL number? What is my LDL number? What is my VLDL number? What is my triglyceride number? And she actually got like annoyed that I was asking those questions. And I'm like, just give me the numbers. <laughs> why, are, why are we in the butt heads about this? Just give me the numbers. Do you yeah. have those numbers? And she did. So she gave them to me and I'm like writing them down, doing the calculations in my head. I'm like, I don't have a problem. Is this the is this the nurse or this is the this is this is the actual MD? Oh, okay. Turk to the this office's credit, it was actually the MD that called me. They didn't oh, yeah. just tell the nurse to call me call me and tell me I had high cholesterol. Yeah. So like, oh, this is this is new. The doctor's actually calling me herself. Unfortunately, she's giving me the wrong information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the that's the reason why I get charged up about that because I've had this happen the last three times I've gone to a doctor. The, all three times they keep on telling me the same shit. Like you need to get on a low cholesterol, low fat diet. A high fat, high cholesterol diet is exactly the way I stopped being obese. It's exactly the way I got my cholesterol ratios in the right range, and it's exactly the way I feel healthiest. So I hate when they tell me that because it's like like the, the boilerplate answer they have for dealing with cholesterol and cholesterol numbers. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's just, it's just based on very outdated science that they're still pushing on people. And I get really pissed about it because I'm an educated person. I spend a lot of time reading about these subjects and paying attention to what the, the latest research on this says. And it pisses me off that they're still getting out this old information and getting people pushed onto these medications that they don't necessarily need. Mm-hmm. when really they should be focused more on changing their lifestyle and the way they're eating. And I don't mean switching into more of like a protein or a, a plant-based, vegan-based, low-fat, low-cholesterol diet. That's not the solution for most people. Right. Now, if you're somebody who has like familial hypercholesterolemia or you have like genetic predisposition for high blood pressure and high cholesterol, then yeah, maybe you shouldn't take the recommendations I'm talking about right now. But I'm saying this is what's worked for me and I hate when people are telling me that, oh, I was told they need to lower my cholesterol, well, why? Is it actually a problem or are they just giving you the wrong information? Mm-hmm. That's why I get charged about that. So I'll jump in now from the from my perspective as a pharmacist and also a health coach. Um, knowing what I know about the way that what your diet, what your dietary intake is going to be like affects your, your cholesterol. And uh, Dr. Dan is, is on the same page with me when we say, you know, it's going to be more like your carbohydrate load is going to be what we're we want to more intensely look at than than the other factors. So, you know what your cholesterol intake is dietarily, or what your fat intake is um, through your diet, because it's like your your body doesn't like uh, your the amount of cholesterol that you're having in your diet is going to minimally impact what your cholesterol in your blood work is going to be. Okay, so that that reflection is is not dependent on what your diet is looking like. Mm-hmm. I mean, to some extent, yes, but but minimally. So you can't drop your your uh, cholesterol to a significant extent by decreasing your dietary intake of cholesterol. Yeah. Okay? And your body is going to make cholesterol if it needs cholesterol. But on the flip side, it's like you're, if your triglycerides are off, and this is w- where your your cholesterol numbers can start to get skewed. That's usually because of uh, too much carbohydrates, a high glycemic load, a high glycemic index load, mm-hmm. and uh, just like Dr. Dan said, you know, you're you're, you're probably looking at uh, insulin sensitivity that is that is kind of botched again. Just like I mentioned before, with uh, with the with the blood pressure thing, you know, we got to look at what kind of fats you are including in your diet because a lot of times people are going to have 
those uh, processed seed oils, which are going to be high omega-6 to omega-3, which is going to be pro-inflammatory, which is going to cause these issues. So it's like, um, you know, if you're thinking about how, how plaque formations occur mm -hmm. in, um, in the circulatory system, this is an inflammatory process. And uh, it's like, you know, the, the cholesterol, the triglycerides that, that are there, it's like those are the firemen trying to put out the fire. And now you're trying to basically lower those numbers artificially. Treating your cholesterol, in my opinion, is, is not the way to actually treat your cholesterol. Mm -hmm. It's going to be look at the underlying issue, and it's usually going to be uh, your blood sugar control. Yeah. Um, so we have to look at, mm -hmm. at other things. And it's unfortunate that you know one of, one of the blockbuster drug categories is the cholesterol-lowering medications, specifically the statins, but there are also things like uh, cholesterol-sequestering agents and um, you know, a variety of other ones that, that, are, mm -hmm. that are going to help to decrease cholesterol, your, your, your blood cholesterol, but is it actually taking care of the issue? No, you're just covering up a problem. It's like it's like fudging your numbers on on something just to just to make it look good on the reports. Yeah, it's like, but really the problem is still there. I will say just to clarify a point: uh, if if you're somebody who's considering what I'm talking about in terms of like eating a relatively high fat, high protein diet, you do have to understand that if you're doing that, you do need to be more restrictive about your carbohydrate choices. Uh, so you want to eat carbohydrates that are primarily vegetables. Uh, low glycemic index, and so just to use like a, a, brec a meal breakfast as an example, eating bacon and eggs, especially if it's like pasture-raised eggs, uh, that is a good healthy meal. Plenty of like vitamins, minerals, healthy fats, protein. It's a satiating meal. Not gonna do a lot of damage to your uh, insulin control, or your gly your glycemic load, or anything like that. But if you're having bacon and eggs and hash browns and toast or pancakes with like a glass of orange juice, mm -hmm. that's a problem. <laughs> But I'm using sugar-free syrup. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well then. Yeah. No, but this is again. It's like so often when they when they do these studies where they come out and they say like, oh, eating fatty meat is bad for you because it's like going to increase your risk of illness and death. It's going to throw off your uh, triglycerides and all this stuff. Yeah. Nice like, try, sugar industry. Yeah. <laughs> if you actually like dig into it a little bit deeper, they're not they're not controlling for those other factors. Like, is this person in addition to eating like a big ass ribeye for dinner? Are they also eating like a loaded baked potato with like uh like of course after they that? Are. Of course they are. <laughs> eating some like really processed ice cream after that, like it's part of a well balanced meal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so okay, then you can sit, then you can make it look like okay, this person's eating high fatty meats. That's really bad for you. Well, what the hell? Like, yeah. <laughs> have they had the ribeye with like maybe some broccoli or like some steamed vegetables and no potato and no ice cream, no dessert? They probably wouldn't great. Yeah. Had they had the ribeye just by itself, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's some food for thought. It's like um, a lot of times, <clears throat> you know, people people go back and forth about like, oh, you know, if you're eating a, a high animal product diet, you're you're gonna you're gonna be ill. Or if you're if you're having a high uh, sugar diet, which uh, usually people point to to fruits. If we're talking about a uh, a natural source of uh, like a whole food of um, of sugars, but um, the issue really comes when, just like you said, when we're combining these two different things. If you're combining a high fat plus a high glycemic load uh, meal, like this is where we run into issues because our body just isn't used to dealing with this. And if you think about foods in nature, and foods will include animal products, it's going to include vegetables, it's going to include fruits, um, but think of a single whole food product that is high in both fat and sugar. It just doesn't happen. It's like if you think about like if, if you were eating exclusively carnivore, it's like that's also called a zero carb diet. Like you don't, you basically have no carb carbohydrate load that you are ingesting if you're on a carnivore diet but on the flip side it's like if you're eating like vegetarian or vegan style it's like you're you're eating a lot of uh, carbohydrate and it might not be sugar 
but you're still having a, a high carbohydrate load. Um, and there might be some protein in there also, but there's little to no fat, right? So unless you're eating like avocados, but on the same, on the same token, it's like avocados don't really have a high glycemic load. So it's, it's high fat, but it's not high sugar. And uh, so it's like, you, that's just something to consider. Our bodies generally will do well on either high fat or high carbohydrate, but you can't do a mixing of the two. You can meet somewhere in the middle and probably be okay. And especially if you're an athlete, you know, you have, you have different caloric expenditure, different um, hormetic uh, responses to the pressures that you're putting yourself physically. But, uh, but the general public, you know, the sedentary individual, it's like you cannot have both a high carbohydrate load and a high fat load and expect that, that you're going to come out healthy on the other end. Yeah. Yep. Although it does kind of make sense, though. You're taking the best of both diets and combining them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it tastes delicious. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, but I mean, unfortunately, our, our bodies have not evolved to handle that right at this point. Yeah. Well, we got to push evolution. <laughs> <laughs> Keep on yeah. feeding you. Yeah. Feeding you. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking like that of <laughs> Yeah, just like that. <laughs> we got to we got to have like X-Men United. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody becomes a blob. Yeah. What what is your mutant power? I can tolerate sugar very, very well. <laughs> <laughs> We laugh, yeah. yeah, we laugh, but I mean, that's an amazing success. Mm -hmm. My insulin sensitivity never wavers. <laughs> My God, it's amazing. <laughs> I remember I was reading that uh, that book, The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. Yeah. And he was talking about really trying to push his um his blood sugar. So uh, he had some, like, outrageous meal, some outrageous high-carb meal, and then he checked his blood sugar two hours later, and it was, like, 101. <laughs> really? I remember thinking, that motherfucker. <laughs> that motherfucker. For... <laughs> For just a, if a lay person is listening and you don't know what, what blood sugars are, uh, a fasting blood sugar is normally in the range of 80 to 100. Yeah. 100 is, is kind of on the normal. high end. Yeah. 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 So we're talking about what's considered normal. And then postprandial or after a meal, you're going to go over 100. Um, usually you don't want to go too much higher than 120, but most people get like to around 150. Um, but yeah, if, if you have eaten some crazy carb loaded meal and you're just cracking 100, yeah, yeah a lot of people are going to be looking at you like, what the hell, man? <laughs> that would have put me at 300. <laughs> does, insulin, does insulin sensitivity get worse with age in general? Yes. Yeah. 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 With, with age, and I feel like this is a, a confounded issue because a lot of times with age, it has been said that people's, uh, the sense of taste starts to diminish. Yeah. Right. So, and, and this is why like all of a sudden, like people are like, I need more salt. Yeah. You know, for, for yeah. this to taste like something, I need more sugar yeah. for this to taste like something. Like my dad's eating a ghost pepper and I even break in a sweat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's but, also, there's an argument to be made, the idea that like, you know, people often say, or most people understand, like a pretty big part of taste is smell. And uh, what they say now is that a loss of the sense of smell is actually like an early sign of uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. Oh, it's a it's basically just a general sign of like a, a cognitive or a cerebral dysfunction, which you could argue is often exacerbated or brought about early based on again poor carbohydrate choices done consistently or chronically. So you're unnaturally or um, you're, you're hastening the process of degeneration of the body, the brain especially. Yeah which could be what leads to the loss of the sense of smell, which could be just an early warning sign of brain atrophy, dementia, Alzheimer's, those kind of things. And going along with the loss of the sense of taste is like, well, could it really just be that the fact that you've been eating such a poor diet for so long is like now your brain is like, I can't sense this anymore. Yeah, it desensitizes itself to it. Yeah, so it, it, 
it kind of raises a question for me. It's like, okay, well, if you had been somebody who was eating like a low carb, let's let's just assume healthy diet for your entire life, are you going to have that same problem as you age? Like, are you going to get to be like a 70 year old that can barely taste anything and an 80 year old that can hardly taste anything? Yeah. Or are you still going to be relatively with it because you're not doing the same damage to your brain that other people have been doing to theirs for decades? Yeah. That's uh that's pretty much exactly where I was going. Also, like uh, I was saying, there's there's there are confounding variables, and I think that 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 generalization of well, you know, your sense of taste starts to go, your sense of smell starts to go. I think that 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 might actually be a a reflection of of poor neuronal function, and uh, it could be because of different inflammatory processes that occur over the life of whoever is experiencing that. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, with, with the rates of obesity and diabetes in, in um, Western society, <clears throat> it's like, uh, you, you have to wonder, is it, are, are these senses that start to go because, or is that a consequence of, yeah, the lifestyle choices that they've made for, for decades? Um, and now, you know, we, we are more prone to dementia, which now, and, and Alzheimer's, which is considered like type three diabetes. Now it's, it's basically like we have, we've uh, hindered our ability to metabolize energy properly. We're and, also, we're, we're looking kind of like the long range picture when we're having this discussion as far as like people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, how they're affected by these kind of things in terms of like sense of smell and sense of taste, put in more like a modern time frame. I know for a fact, when I started doing a uh, paleo and I want like really whole hog at it and I was like, nah. <laughs> I was paleo like 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. Like I was not eating any bread. I was not eating any pasta. I had like cut out beer and alcohol together because I just wanted to see how my body responded to that. My sense of taste started changing. I started mm -hmm. becoming more sensitive to certain tastes, especially the tastes associated with like processed carbs and sweet things. Yeah. It was like fruit started tasting sweeter. I had a soda just because my grandmother gave me one. I was like, oh my God, this is like unbearably sweet. Like it's a sugar a, bomb, yeah. It's a gigantic overload stimulation of the senses, not just in terms of like sweet, like there was like bitter, there was sweet, there was like just like an uncomfortable kind of like tang to it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, my, my nervous system, my smell, my taste is resetting because I'm not doing these consistent dings to my my opiate receptors and other like dopamine receptors in my brain through what I'm eating. So now my body can kind of reset its set point to be more sensitive to these things and things are tasting different. Yeah. I did notice that and I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. Makes me wonder like how long have I been mistasting things or missmelling things because of how much damage I'm doing to my body with just the crap carbs I'm putting in all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think the last time that I had a cola and not even not even a full cola, just a taste of a cola. I was like, wow, this tastes like acid and sugar. Yeah. <laughs> It yeah. just, it didn't taste good. Very, <laughs> that, yeah, the, again, the, the acidity was also something that really struck me. Like, wow, I don't remember what was my old grandmother gave me. She gave me like a Sprite or something like that. I'm yeah. like, I do not remember this tasting anywhere near this acidic. <laughs> not even a cola, huh? It was Sprite. Okay. <laughs> but again, being that she's an elderly woman who doesn't know what we know about nutrition and diet. She's been living the way she's been living for eight decades. She might drink that and basically be like, tastes like a LaCroix. <laughs> it's got like a, the subtlest hint of like a lemon lime flavor. Yeah. Like she likes to add honey to it. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody made a joke about LaCroix one time. It was like somebody was thinking about lemon lime in the other room and they bottled this up. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, it's got that flavor in there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All, right. All right. So I think we covered low blood pressure and uh, lowering cholesterol. So let's go on to number two. So we knocked out number one and number yeah. eight, number two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is keto? You came to the right podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, keto. Uh, the ketogenic diet, ketosis. It's a dangerous diet that nobody can stick to. Yeah. Uh, is what right. I've heard on uh, some right. recent article. All right, so let's move on to the next article. one. <laughs>
Now, there's a recent article that a friend of ours shared with us where you, uh, be, the point of the article is basically saying like keto is potentially dangerous and it's uh, very hard to stick to. It's not reasonable. It's so restrictive and blah, 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 blah. My, my main argument when it comes to keto is that everybody who is considering keto and everybody who wants to talk about it and criticize it should have to read the book, The Ketogenic Bible. Because it's an incredibly dense read about the idea of the keto diet and uh, how it's been misunderstood and how it can be beneficial for a number of people for a variety of reasons. So, like, uh, let's let's just um, kind of define what the keto diet is right now. Um, so, for anybody that doesn't know, the, the keto diet is basically a very very low carb diet. So you're not introducing carbs through your diet, or you're you're introducing a very small amount of carbs. Very and, low carb, very relatively speaking, very high fat, moderate protein. Yeah. Can you quantify the amount of carbs that would qualify you for a low carb diet? It it does depend on the source that you're looking at, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it, it ranges pretty much anywhere from like 20 to 100 grams of carb on a on a daily basis. Yeah. Putting into percentages, like again, if I'm remembering correct, if I'm remembering this correctly from the ketogenic Bible, they said that in most cases a ketogenic diet has about 10 to 20 percent carbohydrates. Yeah. So if you want to look at it on, a, you know, how many grams of carbohydrate, you know, like I said, you can go from 20 to 100. But I think that it, it does make more sense to look at the ratios of your dietary intake because, um, you know, 20, 20 grams of carbohydrates to me versus 20 grams of carbohydrate to the mountain. You know, that we're, <laughs> we're t- we have two different caloric uh, requirements on a daily basis, right? Yeah. So, so really, it does make more sense to look at it from a percentage standpoint or, or a, a ratio balance between your macronutrients. So the macronutrients are going to be carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. And generally speaking, like you, you probably are going to have, no matter who you are, you're going to have a minimum protein need or amino acid need more specifically. But the idea is like you can balance fat and carbohydrate. Those fat and carbohydrate are, if you're looking just at them at them from just a macronutrient perspective, those are energy sources. Arguably though, uh, fat comes along with fat-soluble nutrients that you can't get from carbohydrates. So it's like these are two different levers that you can balance. Your protein needs are going to stay relatively static um, either way. Um, but mm, you know what? That, that's also kind of simplistic, oversimplifying it. Because if you're if you're doing high fat, very low carb, then your protein needs actually go up because uh, you can actually go through gluconeogenesis with the proteins that you have on board. So, so it's it's a complicated thing. Glu- glu- Gluconeogenesis—that's when your body turns protein into sugars, right? Yes. So when your body produces its own glucose. Yeah. So, so for anybody who who has uh, who has not heard this before, we do have essential fatty acid needs. We have essential amino acid needs. So this is where where proteins come in. Uh, We have zero essential carbohydrate needs. You do not need to have dietary carbohydrate. You should probably clarify, when you say essential, you mean that you actually have to take it in through your diet because you're not just producing it naturally in your own body? Yes. So your body has certain fatty acids. Your body has certain amino acids that it cannot produce on its own. We can make all of the glucose or the carbohydrate that we actually need. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you you should avoid carbohydrates at all costs? Not necessarily, and it and especially if you're uh, you know an athlete of some sort, a non-endurance athlete, so a power athlete of some sort, you you're probably going to want to have some carbohydrate in your diet, and you might you might be using it strategically to enhance your performance. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think like I said, we we need to look at the the proportions or ratios that uh, we are taking in these macronutrients in. So so yeah, the keto diet it's it looks different for whoever the individual is. Yeah. 
But the purpose is people follow it generally to convert their body to burning fat. And so it's a great way to lose weight. So that's why it's become so popular recently. And it's like easy. It's easier than, um, you know. And just straight up calorie restriction. Yeah, for someone who lives, who's been eating like a standard American diet, Mm -hmm. this is much easier than doing any of the other diets, right? Like a a vegan diet or something like that. The keto diet, as a, in general, like it can be very useful for like, uh, like you mentioned, like burning body fat mm-hmm. and getting a more healthy body composition, lowering but, inflammation. Lowering inflammation, definitely. Uh, as a therapeutic tool, though, it's also very useful for a lot of like neurodegenerative issues, mm-hmm. like uh, epilepsy. Um, epilepsy is one very prime example that there, there have been a lot of people who've had great success getting epilepsy under control using a ketogenic style diet. In terms of like issues like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, it may potentially be very beneficial for people with those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with like concussions and traumatic brain injury, I mentioned again that book, The Ketogenic Bible, and even uh, another book called The Concussion Repair Manual, they make very strong arguments for uh, when people have traumatic brain injuries or concussions, they should automatically be put on a ketogenic-based diet to facilitate their recovery and uh, healing process. Uh, the Concussion Repair Manual, Dr. Dan Angle actually makes a really interesting, um, gives a really inter- interesting description of how people not being put on a ketogenic diet or just basically eating regular foods, quote unquote, which may include like some very high high carbohydrate foods, they may actually be inhibiting the repair process following something like a concussion or traumatic brain injury because of the way it affects the brain. Whereas going on a ketogenic diet, ketogenic style diet would actually assist the healing process, speed it along and make it so that it's a more complete process faster. So then let me ask you this. So it's a great tool for like burning fat and to uh, treat some of those issues, but can it be a lifestyle? Can you continually be on the ketogenic diet? Yeah, that's actually, it's a thing that makes me laugh. Anytime I see an article that says like, oh, the ketogenic diet is too restrictive. It's not something people can follow for more than maybe like a few months at a time. Like again, in that book, the ketogenic Bible, they have multiple documented cases of people who have been doing this for over 30, 20, 30 years. Sounds like they've been managing to sustain on it. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're able to do this for at least 20 years, it's probably fairly tolerable for you. It's just, it's a matter of how you want to live your life and what your goals are. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to interject here. George, you mentioned like this is a good way to lower inflammation. Mm-hmm. I want to be careful with this because we, we also have the idea of dirty keto where it's like I can eat whatever it is. As long as, you know, I'm, I'm not creating like this, uh, this insulin response, yeah. right? Which could include the stuff that we were talking about earlier, like the seed oils, the industrial oils. Yeah. And, and again, these are, these are oils that cause, they, they have oxidative damage done to them already. They cause oxidative damage to our physiology once they're introduced. They have a high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, which is pro-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important that when we are looking at the keto diet that we also look at it not only um, qualitatively or, or quantitatively but also qualitatively because you can you can definitely have you know pick a fried food that doesn't have some some kind of breading on it mm-hmm. but um, you know you, you can have a bad form of keto also yeah so it's like yeah you might be decreasing your glycemic load you might give be you might be helping out your insulin sensitivity but you could have other inflammatory processes that you were encouraging because of the different fat options that you're including in your right. diet. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's like with anything. It's like the building materials that you're introducing are going to dictate the function of whatever it is that you're building. Yeah. Our body is that way also. So mm-hmm. it's like you want to give your body the best building blocks possible so that it can function mm-hmm. optimally. Right. Okay. So it's like, you know, having aftermarket parts versus factory parts on your car. <laughs> I mean, not to say that there aren't some good aftermarket or, or there aren't any good aftermarket parts, 
but there are definitely some cheap cheap knockoffs out there yeah. and that's what like the 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 seed oils are going to be yeah and so you're just going to pay for it later on down i the mean line. just hearing you talk about it too it's just like yeah you only have like this one body mm-hmm. you know that this it's, one it's vehicle. the only place you live yeah this where one, else are you going to live yeah this <laughs> one vehicle and like the worse you treat it like the worse it's going to be for you to get around you know yeah so uh just put the best shit into it yeah. mm-hmm it's, uh, it's kind of a cheesy analogy, but it's one that makes a lot of sense. I've shared this in the number of patients is the idea that, um, you know, let's assume when you turn 16 years old and you're given the keys to your first car and you're told that this is the only car you're ever going to get, however long you want it to last, you got to take care of it for that, with that in mind. That's the same basic idea with it, with your body. It's like from the day you're born, you only get one, as far as any of us know. So why don't you take better care of it? Yeah. It's, it's kind of that. Uh, to Dr. Hector's point, as far as like dirty keto and that, uh, Again, if you're going to go keto, paleo, whatever, the best bet is to stick to whole foods as often as possible that fit within the parameters of that specific way of eating. Uh, you know, unfortunately, food manufacturers, they're very smart. They're very quick to pick up on what the trends are, what the fads are. And they'll slap their labels, keto, paleo, whatever it is, on any kind of food product they got coming out that technically fits in that, in that ballpark. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing for you to eat. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you got to be careful about that. Yeah. All right. Question number three, how to get rid of the hiccups? <laughs> well, we could tell you. <laughs> There's a lot of bro science behind this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You could Hic- scare people. Yeah. Yeah, hiccups. Uh... Get, get real close. This is, this is how you do it. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Done. Yeah. My, Share uh, this with your friends. Yeah. <laughs> my, daughter got, my daughter actually had the hiccups a couple of weeks ago. So I was like, oh, you, she's like, you know, do it. It's like, <gasps> Yeah. And she looks confused because, again, she's a toddler. So she's <laughs> like, what is this? So I, I was like, I'll try this. So I like went around the corner yeah. and waited until she came around the corner. I jumped out. I was like, ah. And she goes, no, daddy. No. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's so cute. She's like, no. And got all mad about it. So she's still hiccuping. She still had hiccups, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, again, bro science is like, that's one theory people have. It's like, well, you got to scare the person with hiccups. That'll get rid of it. This I mean, always this always works for me. I chug a big glass of water, okay. and I, I don't. I have no longer have hiccups after that. I've heard that one. I've also heard like you gotta try to drink a glass of water from the opposite end of what you normally would. So that basically says like if you're holding a glass of water in your hand, don't drink from the lip that's close to you. You gotta like crane your head forward and like drink out of the opposite lip, and somehow that's supposed to help you. Yeah. Me personally. Again, you got to just try this out for yourself. Like, when I got the hiccups, the thing I do is I just hold my breath as long as I can. <laughs> and pass out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, until I pass out and then I forget about it. Yeah, you <laughs> no, but, uh, had to wake up in a pool. You know, <laughs> no, but if I just hold my breath as long as I can, sometimes that works. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this This is kind of a throwaway question Yeah, don't do us. it in the bath. But, but I mean, it's like uh, hiccups are specificity of the diaphragm. So you, you've caused some sort of irritation to the diaphragm, and now you have to... Either let that pass, or you have to try to do something to correct it. Well, now you're creeping into question number five. What causes hiccups? Yeah. Is that? Oh, well, well then. We're taking out three <laughs> and five at the same time. I mean, let's let's do that. I mean, it, like I just said, it's going to be like you you've irritated the diaphragm in some way, um, and yeah, there are all there's all kinds of bro science. Um, unfortunately, you know, it, it's usually just going to be the irritation is going to pass and it's going to go away. If you have some sort of chronic issue, yes, you probably should actually go to the doctor and you gotta, you got to kind of just hammer down what is the cause of this. It's a little bit of a tangent, given that George and I are both, uh, or we have been, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners. I got the hiccups one time after we started rolling. That was terrible. 
<laughs> I'm, like, I'm out of breath anyway. I don't need to hiccup on Thomas. I'm like the guy I was rolling with at the time was like, "You want to stop?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> this is the real world. Yeah, choke me out. Yeah. I was like, "No, I really gotta try not to let this guy choke me." Yeah. <laughs> All right, is that pretty well covered? Three and five. Yeah, I think so. All right, number four. How long does the flu last? How long does the flu last? Yeah, uh, so, so. About a week if you're a, if you're a weak bitch. <laughs> So, There's an interesting discussion I've seen going on recently as far as like, well, are you sure it's really the flu or is it just a bad cold? Because the yeah, flu the itself, difference? well, the flu virus itself can potentially be very dangerous yeah. for people. Uh, it all comes back to basically what is your level of health at the time that you're exposed to it and what is your level of health at the time you're actually infected. But short answer is, yeah, about a week for most people. The flu will last about a week. It's going to be a really intense week, but in most cases, it's over by that point. A little bit of a tangent, but like I went to a nutrition seminar where uh, one of the main speakers was a PhD immunologist who's taught at the University of Colorado. And uh, he was saying, uh, because Ebola was real big in the news at the time, he was saying that every virus you ever come in contact with the main period of time is the first five days mm-hmm. he's like from the day you're exposed to the time you actually start showing symptoms to the time you know whether or not you're going to be okay the first five days are the most important yeah uh, and again being that ebola is very big in the news at the time he's like i'm saying this applies even to something as dangerous as ebola or the hantavirus or other stuff that's like made into books and movies and all this stuff He's like, if you can survive the first five days, you're going to be okay. Yeah. But the big question is, are you going to survive the first five days? Does he have a guarantee on this? (laughs) He teaches at the University (laughs) of Colorado. You can ask him. Um, he's like with Ebola there are people who survive it there are people who develop immunity to it it takes about five days to really get it ramped up and going but after those five days that's like the hump his name is Logan yeah (laughs) he's like then you're going to have you're going to be getting into your adaptive immune response Uh you're going to be developing antibodies to this stuff your body's going to be fighting it off. You're going to develop uh, uh, immune system memory to it. And if you're ever exposed to it again, you will not get the same illness at the same level ever again, even even after the Ebola virus. He's like, there are people who had the disease, overcame it, and now they're helping other people with the disease or like working in hospitals with them. And they're just they're able to do it because they don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so the flu is kind of in that same boat. It's like it's going to be a really intense or potentially really intense five or seven days. But if you survive that, you'll probably come out the other side. At least if you get exposed to that flu virus again, you won't have the same issue anywhere near the same level again. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is actually one of the uh, since you mentioned if you get exposed to that flu virus, the the flu virus is a is a fast mutating virus. Okay. So if you know about uh, the flu vaccine, you know that in recent years we've had different versions of it. Okay. So and and if you're listening to the news, they're like you need to get the trivalent version because that's going to give you the most coverage, right? So it gives you coverage of three different types of the flu. But on an annual basis, basically what we're doing is we're taking a best guess at like what's going to be the strain of flu that's going to be coming around this time. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically like you're rolling the dice on is this is is this vaccination going to help me or not? Okay. And then there are other issues with the vaccination itself with which are, you know, not just is it the right strain of the flu, but you also have other these other things that are that are possibly going to cause different types of neuronal inflammation. And this is arguably the source of like um, the argument where people say, well, you know, this person got the vaccination and uh, that precipitated autism in them. Okay. Now, there are a lot of people that just want to sweep that away. It's like, that's not possible. Mm -hmm. But but now we're looking at it and there's like, well, I mean, there are things in there that can cause neuronal inflammation. And especially in a developing neurological system, that can cause some issues. Mm -hmm. Right. And you think about like, 
how many vaccinations are kids scheduled for throughout their childhood? And this is also when they have developing neurological systems. And uh, so it becomes very hard to, for, for me to, to kind of just accept that it's like we need to be constantly giving, you know, things that are maybe going to give some immunity, maybe. And, uh, well, before I go on to that, but, but yeah, we're maybe giving immunity, but we're also introducing a risk factor for inflammation in the brain, potentially, which, which can affect multiple different things as far as the way that the person is developing, this child, okay? Um, but then, um, I forgot where I was going with the other, with the other point I was going to make. But, oh, uh, and also, um, I forgot who this doctor was. PhD, you sent me this clip, Dr. Dan, um, or maybe um, Chirag did. But anyway, um, he was saying, like, the, the herd immunity idea or the idea of vaccinations giving us immunity is based on an old model of the immunological system. It's like uh, Dr. Dan mentioned, you know, where we go into adaptive response. We also have an innate response. But um, what wasn't known at the time that we developed this model is there's actually a third component. And this is where interferons start to come into play. And uh, with the knowledge of the interferon uh, portion of the immunological system, it's like maybe vaccines don't make as much sense as we thought they did. Mm -hmm. Because the, the idea behind giving somebody exposure to either uh, a live virus or fractionated virus, dead virus, whatever it is, it's like you, you are eliciting a response from the body where we are making eh, antibodies to the antigens that we are introducing. Right? So it's like we're, we're kind of trying to cheat the system where it's like we expose the body to whatever it is so that it recognizes it. And then the immune system has a step up and can recognize whatever the threat is and neutralize it earlier yeah. before it actually causes all the symptomatic issues. Right. It was actually, I was actually the one that shared that with you and our friend. Uh, it's actually from uh, MIT PhD, Dr. Shiva Ayyadurai, A-Y-Y-A-D-U-R-A-I. So in case anybody's wondering if it's like a legit source, he is an MIT PhD, MIT PhD, this is his field. So he is the one saying that uh, we really need to rethink the basis for how we're using this this treatment method and whether or not it's actually useful in the way we think it is. Uh, going back for a moment to the, the PhD immunologist I was talking to at the seminar, I actually did get a chance to talk to him and ask him a couple of questions during one of the breaks. And as specifically regards the, uh, the flu vaccine, I asked him, you know, uh, if you get the trivalent uh, vaccination, you're getting three different strains of the flu. If you get the quadvalent, it's four different strains of it. And I said, I asked him basically, so this is, this is based on a best guess of the strains that were circulating the year previous, correct? He said, yes, that's how it's made. And I said, okay, is it not true that there are potentially thousands of different flu viruses that could be in circulation any year, given the fact that they mutate so rapidly? We don't actually know what's going to go around this year. Uh, so when you're saying you're giving a shot that's got three or four different strains in it, it's really a drop in the bucket of what could potentially be going around. Isn't that part of the reason why they have such a high failure rate? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, that is true. And I asked him, so wouldn't it make more sense to spend more of our time and energy on proactive steps, teaching people how to eat correctly, the nutrition that they should be having, the supplements they should be having, exercise, stress management, all that good stuff. Even just something as simple as making sure people know to wash their hands so that they're not spreading it, the flu and cold as, as easily as they might otherwise, wouldn't that be the better use of our time and energy than trying to get more people to take this? And uh, his response made me laugh. He just goes, 
well, something's better than nothing, isn't it? And he shrugged. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, this this dude's a PhD immunologist. This is his field, and his response is just, eh, something's better than nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just told him, I don't think I agree. And he goes, well, agree or disagree. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, this is fun. Yeah. Was he also Anchorman? <laughs> well, agree to disagree. <laughs> very, very Ron Burgundy. <laughs> all right, so... No, um, but... The, uh, to go back to that Dr. Shiva for one moment, he did mention uh, in that, that YouTube video that he put up, which is very fascinating. I suggest people look it up. He mentions that when you have a natural exposure to a virus like the flu, because there are components of it, the like H1N1, H2N5, that kind of stuff, he's like, when you're naturally exposed to it and it goes through the, um, the process of the natural immune system, your body is able to figure out to a certain extent how to fight other strains of it, not all of them, but some of them. So you have a, an immunity not only to the specific virus that you're exposed to, but you may also have a limited scope of uh, immuno, um, immunity to other strains of that virus or similar viruses just because of the fact that your immune system is pretty amazing. It knows how to do these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the big question is, are you supporting it the proper way through your lifestyle? Are you an otherwise healthy individual? Because those things do matter. Uh, if you're an otherwise unhealthy individual, just about any illness is going to take you down a lot harder than it will other people. It could potentially kill you if it's a flu. Yeah. So I think that this um, this actually ties in really well with um, number seven because we're dealing with viruses either way. Mm-hmm. So we just talked about the flu virus, uh, but number seven was, was what is HPV? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about human papilloma virus. So I think the numbers are like something like... of individuals who are sexually active are going to be exposed to the human papilloma virus at some point in their life. The the big scares with human papilloma virus are that it's linked to different types of cancers. In men, I think it's, what is it, Um, anal cancer? No? (laughs) It's cervical and ovarian cancer in women. I think it's anal cancer in men. There it is. Yes. Yeah. So it's the main cause of cervical cancer, anal cancer and is linked to rising rates of mouth and throat cancer. Okay? But like I said, we, we also know that a large percentage of the population, so here it says, um, looking at uh, today.com, um, 80% of people will get an HPV infection at some point in their lives. That doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to have some morbidity and mortality attached to that. You could be asymptomatic, but at the ex- extremes, morbidity, you can... For people who don't know, morbidity and mortality is illness and death. Yeah. So uh, at the extreme end of it, you can have these issues that, that we were just talking about, the cervical cancer, the anal cancer, the mouth or throat cancer. But uh, just like we were talking about, doesn't it make more sense just to support our immune systems? And that could be through avoidance. Um, it could be through nutritional support. And when I say avoidance, I'm not talking about just, uh, just not having sex with people that have these issues going along with them. But it's going to be avoidance of the things that are going to compromise your immune system to begin with. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is going to be the high carbohydrate load, the the industrial oils included in the diet, um, exposures to different um, inflammatory causing things in our environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, I mean, that could be as simple as like, don't get a sunburn because now you're challenging your immune system unnecessarily, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's simple things like that, but, uh, but the, the idea here is going to be like, if we optimize our health and specifically our immune function health with regard to do these two things, the flu and the human papilloma virus, it's like, these are things that it's going to be like, 
like throwing a stone at a knight encased in armor, right? <laughs> uh, versus like let's let's even say that you you took a stone and you uh, threw it from a slingshot or slung it from a slingshot at a knight in armor versus you slung it at some dude just walking down the street. Right? <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you hit him in the ear. Potentially, you might just annoy him. Yeah. Potentially, you could take an eye out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but it's like if if you are doing the right things, like you are encasing yourself in that armor, mm-hmm. and you're you're making it much less likely that you are going to have issues with these seemingly minor insults in our environment. Well, to be a, to be a little bit more specific on the idea of avoidance with. STDs like HPV is also just, I personally don't believe that teaching abstinence is a way to help kids or people in general. It just doesn't work. Most studies that that I've heard about or I'm aware of, teaching abstinence in schools does nothing really. If anything, it's actually, actually unfortunately kind of fuels the fire, makes the problem worse. Well, when I was in high school, I signed a piece of paper that said that I wouldn't have sex when I was in high school. And I took it so seriously. I carried it all the way to my mid twenties. <laughs> Did your parents make you sign it? <laughs> Zing. <Yeah. laughs> no, but, but the idea of like teaching abstinence in schools, like as a as a as a policy, it really doesn't do much. Yeah. So you have to be realistic about this, and like it, I do believe it goes back to like it, it all starts in the home. If you're a parent, like I'm a, I'm a father. I'm a father to a, a girl. Uh, I feel like it's going to be mine and my wife's responsibility to make sure that our daughter knows that as far as like sexual activity is concerned, you've got to be careful. You've got to use protection. You've got to be smart. And that is really the only way you can kind of protect yourself or do the best of your ability mm-hmm. to try to protect yourself because... And the day you do it, your mother and I will die. Yeah, <laughs> there's all that. <laughs> But I'm like, it's just being realistic. It's like, people are going to give in to their urges. This is a natural thing. Be smart about it. Know how to use protection. Know where protection is. There, uh, no, from my days working in pharmacies, it is shocking how some adults, I mean, people in their 20s, don't know some very basic things about, like, sex and sexually transmitted diseases mm-hmm. and even pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... Somewhere along the line, your school or your parents are both failed you. <laughs> How do you not know this? You're 22, 23, whatever you are. Yeah. How do you not know this? Yeah. Like to this to the extent of like, I have people in the pharmacies basically ask me like, can you get pregnant from oral or anal sex? Yeah. And I'm like, is is this a legitimate question right now? Because I'm working. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, they have a microphone with them. Yeah. <laughs> or people thinking like, well, I didn't know you can get an, an STD in your throat. Like, okay, come on. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how it was with you guys, with your parents, but I never talked to my parents about sex at all. Well, I, I told my wife, like, my my mom, because our father didn't do this, my mom was yeah. the one who had, like, the talk with yeah. me, and the, the talk basically consisted of, you don't, uh, how did it go, basically, it was, it was, the idea was basically, you don't have kids until you're married. <laughs> And followed by 40 minutes of her crying. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have kids until you're married with a lot of, like, staring. Yeah. Like, you get what I'm talking about? No. (laughs) I was just like, okay. Like, I kind of understood. For whatever reason, I just understood what she was getting at. Yeah. And the idea was basically just, like, sex is something for mature people. Yeah. Don't act grown until you are, basically. Yeah. Like, I had no idea really how it worked until I was in seventh grade and I saw porno. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, that's how you get pregnant? <laughs> I remember there was a guy that my brother uh, went to high school with, and he was telling me when he was, like, in seventh or eighth grade, 
he thought a man and woman get married, and the woman eats a lot of food, and her stomach gets big, and then the food turns into a baby. She actually <laughs> turns into a child? Yeah, but okay. it only happens after you get married, you know? But it's just, like, it's that kind of stuff. They, like, they teach... It's a good thing that they actually do teach something in, like, health class. Yeah. Cause I think this, the this... internet really fills in a lot of gaps for these kids. For yeah. These days, I mean, if you're a child, um, or, or just somebody who is ignorant to whatever, it's like, you know, if you don't know how it goes, then you, you're not going to act in accordance with the logic of the actual process. Yeah. And this is, I used this analogy at my gym the other day. So it was like uh, Thor, I think, said, you know, somebody said like, oh, you use magic to do this? He's like, well, magic's just science that you don't understand yet. Yeah. And I think there's 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 a lot to that. And uh, <laughs> you're like, whoa, that's how it happens? Yeah. And, you know, as a kid, you're like, uh, okay, I don't quite grasp. But, you know, once you get married and you eat a lot and you produce a, a kid, okay, <laughs> okay. So, obviously, the me. logic is that, you know, first you have to get married and then you can have a kid. Yeah. Right? So, so before that, you're like, Otherwise, oh. you get fat. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, you just get fat. Yeah. <laughs> but, I'm, but, I mean, like, it's... You, you can't fault somebody for not actually knowing something um, if if they just weren't educated in it. Yeah. So, kind so of, there's kind that. Kind of along that same line, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. Like a week or so ago, my wife was, uh, she was, we were at home on a weekend. My wife's like playing around with my daughter. Again, my daughter's two and a half. My wife goes, uh, do you know where you came from? My daughter's like, huh? <laughs> she goes, uh, you used to be in mommy's tummy. And my wife's like pointing at, like, at, her, at her stomach. And my daughter goes, What? <laughs> and she goes, you came out of mommy's tummy. You were in here, and then you were born into the world. And my daughter goes, no, mommy, no. <laughs> like, I reject this premise. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, why are you so upset? And she's like, yeah, I'm just telling you, like, you came out of mommy's tummy. She goes, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I remember similarly in uh, grade school when we had the uh, basically the animal kingdom introduction. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not a mammal. I'm not in the same class as, you know, whatever other lower creature there was. I'm like, humans, <laughs> are, <laughs> humans are standalone mammals. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can totally relate to this. Like, no, I can't accept that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. That's impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's a Skywalker complex. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're pretty good with HPV? I think so. So we, we, fit, we filled out number eight already, how to lower cholesterol. Let's talk mm-hmm. about number nine. Now we got to get number six. Oh, uh, we got to do what number six. Yeah. What causes kidney stones? So this is, I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's complex. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the, the causation of kidney stones generally is said to be, right now, people oversimplify it and say, oh, it's because of lack of hydration. Yeah. You have lack of hydration. And That's then what you, I was going to say right you now. Have, <laughs> you have crystallization of whatever minerals um, yeah. in the soft tissues. Uh, specifically the kidneys right here, yeah. and that causes um, extreme pain. Um, maybe also passing of a kidney stone because yeah. you formed it, now you have to pass it, and actually the passing could be very painful. Um, if you're trying to pass a little rock through your urethra, that could be very painful. Or if you have uh, the pain of actually feeling the stone in the kidney, that can also be very painful. Um, but uh, I think that this is, this is multifactorial, but uh, I also feel like a lot of the times it's, it is... Not simply going to be like lack of hydration, because when we think of lack of hydration, most people think of like, oh, you just didn't have enough water in your system, right? But I feel like eh, there's also electrolyte imbalance that is occurring here, right? And and it can be a uh, a consequence of a poorly balanced diet. And when I say a poorly balanced diet, it's like if you're having a lot of uh, processed foods in your diet, if you're eating a lot of frozen dinners, if you're eating a lot of... Uh, you know, pre-made pizzas that you're throwing in the oven or you're going out to eat and having just fast food, you know, now you 
usually are going to be introducing a lot of unbalanced salts into your diet. When I say unbalanced salts, I want to differentiate that, you know, if, if you're adding sea salt to a home-cooked meal of, you know, properly sourced whole foods, not a problem. Yeah. You know, you actually need that for electrolyte balance. Yeah. But if you are eating something that is loaded up in MSG or sodium chloride or even potassium chloride like Papa Dash or something like that, it's like uh, now you're heavily loading singular ions like potassium, like chloride, like uh, monosodium glutamate. Mm -hmm. okay? So you're, you're, you're basically skewing your ion balance in one direction, and your body is not really good at that. All right? So what happens is now these things come out of fluid, they precipitate where they're not supposed to, and this is where the stones come from. Yeah. If you have well-balanced salts and electrolytes, your body is actually really good at helping you to balance that by not only balancing them physiologically when you already have them in your system, but also if you start to have too much salt or too much of whatever, you usually have a cutoff mechanism. There's a feedback mechanism where you're like, that's salty, and you just want to stop eating it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you know, we have so much stuff in our environment, and our, our environment includes the food choices that we are making that, that hack these systems and basically override our body's ability to say, Stop that. We don't need any more of that. Um, and, you know, we, we have like the salted pretzel that has just sodium chloride in it. Yeah. And now we're really loading up on sodium. Your body's trying to get rid of the sodium, but there's also potassium wasting that goes along with that because you can't just get rid of sodium. Like I said, our bodies are not good at balancing out a single ion, but if you have a good input of various ions, your body's like, okay, I can take some of this, some of that, balance this over here, balance that over there, and it does fairly well. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, what causes kidney stones? Simply put, you could say that it is a lack of hydration, but more realistically, I'd say it's because of electrolyte imbalance. And when I say electrolytes, that's going to be our salts or minerals, uh, all that stuff. To kind of add to this conversation, the Mayo Clinic says kidney stones, kidney stones form when your urine contains more crystal forming substances, such as calcium, oxalate, and uric acid, than the fluid in your urine can uh, dilute. Uh, the Harvard University uh, website says you should avoid stone-forming stone foods, which includes beets, chocolate, spinach, rhubarb, tea, and most nuts, which are rich in oxalate, and colas, which are rich in phosphates, both of which can contribute to kidney stones. And most kidney stones, according to the American Kidney Fund, are made up of calcium and oxalate, or sometimes calcium and phosphate. Uh, this is also an argument for... Um, I was having this conversation with a patient of mine recently talking about why is vitamin K2 something important to take in conjunction with vitamin D as a supplement. Vitamin D, for most people, most people know that it's important for things like immune system health, nervous system health, muscle health. Uh, one of vitamin D's all, main roles is also that it helps with the absorption of calcium in the diet and just in general. But if you're going to be taking vitamin D to help your body absorb calcium, the uh, argument is that you should also be supplementing with adequate levels of vitamin K2 because while vitamin D helps your body to absorb calcium, vitamin K2 helps direct it to the areas where it should be, which includes bones and teeth, and away from areas where it should not be, which includes the heart and the kidneys and other organs. Mm -hmm. Well put. I think that covers our kidney stones. Number nine. How many calories should I eat a day? <laughs> um, well, this is, yeah. Well, I would say you need to eat exactly 2,000 calories a day because that's what all the RDA labels are based <laughs> on. <laughs> No, but this is yeah. this is something where it's like, well, I mean, this is a very individual response because, yeah. uh, you know, um, where I, I come from a 
community of athletes because that's that's what I've created at my gym. And uh, if you are an athlete, your caloric needs are going to be very different from the person that basically they play video games in the evening, they go to work in the morning, they come back home and they play video games again. Mm-hmm. All right, so their caloric expenditure is very very low compared to somebody who is. You know, they they run around with their kids. Um, they don't have time to play the video games, and uh, then they are going to the gym the next morning, going to work. They come back and they got family time, uh, or they work the long day at work. Um, you know, whatever it is, like their their energy expenditure is going to be higher than the person that is living the sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so, how many calories should I eat a day is a is a very nuanced question, and I I really don't think that's something you can just answer just by Google searching it. Well, let me ask you this, because this is more your department, being that you own a CrossFit gym and you work with athletes on a daily basis. And you're how a primal health coach. I am a primal health coach. And you're a primal health coach. And I myself am an athlete. How many, <laughs> how many of your athletes actually care about their calorie intake as I, opposed to like other macronutrients like uh, carbohydrates, protein, fat? Yeah, I also feel like this is something that is specific to the community that you are working with because the community of athletes that I work with is mostly the athlete that I was just talking about, where they have kids, they have a family, and um, you know, aesthetics are not their primary concern. Athletic yeah. performance isn't even their primary concern. It's just being healthy and not being overweight and having the ability to have the energy to move around and, and keep up with their families. So uh, how many people actually care about their caloric intake? It's In, in my community, it's very few. Yeah. But but they are more interested in like what are the foods that are that are going to serve my health and what are the foods that I know are challenging my health. Mm. There's a question that came up for me when uh, you and I that were discussing uh, George was it you and I that were discussing like Michael Phelps when he was in like the prime of his uh, Olympics competition he was supposedly eating some like fourteen thousand calories a day. Yeah, he was eating an insane amount. Well, think about how much he was burning too. At the same right. Time. But the thing that that I wondered about that was, does Michael Phelps actually give a shit how many calories he eats? Yeah, he never quantified that. Right? <laughs> like, his coaches his nutri- probably yeah, did. Yeah. Him and his nutritionist were. The, this this is what I was wondering about. I was like, do he and his nutritionist actually discuss the number of calories he's taking in, or are they just worried about the macronutrients, like how many grams of carbohydrates, how many grams of fat, protein? I, I just wonder, like, at that level of the game, do they actually care yeah. about calories? The athlete doesn't really need to know that, right? It's yeah. just, it, it they're probably seems... just like, hey, do you want to eat four pizzas today? Yeah. yeah. The, the idea of, like, sure. calories in, calories out now seems like a very layperson kind of consideration or concern, in my opinion, or yeah. from what I've seen. And even, like, uh, there was about a year ago, I was watching on YouTube a Paleo FX presentation by this guy who... I, I believe the book that he wrote was called the um, the Calorie Myth. He was basically saying like you know the we've all been sold from like grade school nutrition, the idea that like you know, uh, so many grams of fat has so many calories, so many grams of carbohydrate has this many calories, and that's the thing we should be concerned about because calories in, calories out. That's basically how you maintain a healthy body composition. And the reality is, for in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter, or it doesn't matter in the way that people think. Uh, because it's not as simple as just if you eat 2,000 calories, you got to exercise to burn off 2,000 calories because calories are not all created equal. So this idea of how many calories should I eat a day, it seems like it's really only important to the the lay person, the average person, which is still an important person. But as far as like when you start getting into more active people, more health conscious people, they just don't really worry about that kind of stuff as much. Yeah, I think um, you know if we're looking at just calories. Um, you know, we, we could say like, well, a thousand calories of fat, a thousand calories of protein, a thousand calories of carbohydrates, 
are going to look very different from a nutritional perspective and the effect that they're going to have on your physiology. So how many calories should I eat a day? Again, it's very nuanced. It's like, okay, well, uh, are we talking about calories from fat, carbohydrates, uh, protein? Um, what what are your goals? Where what are you, where are you at right now? Like, do you do we need to have you in caloric deficit? Do we need you? Are you are you trying to build? Do we need to have you in caloric surplus so that you can have actually anabolic effect? So this again is a very nuanced question, and and how many calories should I eat a day is not actually a very well constructed question. Mm. How many calories should I eat from each macronutrient um, category is more appropriate. But, um, you know, the, the ratios then become important. Bottom line is how many calories should I eat a day is, is not a simple or even a really good question. It's going to be like, let's, let's look at all the factors that are involved and uh, look at what your macronutrient needs. And, and, I mean, you know, beyond that, we even have to take a look at what your micronutrient needs are. Because if, if, if we're doing keto, then probably our, our protein ratios are going to have to be higher. So our, protein, our calories from protein are going to have to be higher. Um, if you're trying to, uh, again, feed performance, your carbohydrate load probably has to be a little bit higher um, if you are not an endurance athlete. So if you're some kind of power athlete, um, you know, resistance training athlete, a CrossFit athlete, powerlifting, Olympic lifting, uh, pick any sport that is not like triathlon, marathon, or something like that, where it's a long-distance endurance sort of test. Um, so, yeah, it's just not an easy question to answer mm. and also not a good question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very, it, it's a throwback really to like those old school diets from like the 90s, right? Where yeah. It's like, you know, the if you're, it, it actually really is, to, to its credit, it is very simplistic, right? So yeah. if you can find out how many calories you need and you can fit that into your, your schedule, I mean, there is some science to it, right? It's like if you're burning more than you're taking in, you will lose weight. Yeah, I'd say, okay, so like if we, if we, let's, let's burn it down. So it's like if, if we're talking about calories in equals calories out yeah that does make sense if you're eating the right foods yeah but unfortunately again coming back to the processed foods it's like processed foods add so many confounding variables like your physiology is actually jacked yeah. if you are having a bunch of preservatives a bunch of uh, artificial sweeteners uh, a bunch of industrial oils it's like your, your physiology is not meant to deal with these things so the caloric load of each individual product like that doesn't dictate the physiological response that you're going to elicit with that yeah so put another way of trying to simplify that idea is to me it's the quality of your calories matters a lot more than the quantity of your calories yeah yep. you know um you know as a simple example like you know if you're eating 500 calories of broccoli that's gonna have a far different effect on you than if you're eating like 500 calories of a snickers yeah they're not exactly the same thing they're gonna have far different effects on you yeah. weirdly gonna, both of those are attractive to me yeah <laughs> one should cause you more concern than the yeah. other in terms of like your overall health and well-being yeah but one of them doesn't have nougat right yeah <laughs> what exactly is nougat uh it's a basic building block. Yeah, that's a better question. <laughs> it's uh, the fourth uh, macronutrient. Yeah. <laughs> better question to me rather than calories is what is nougat? <laughs> How nutritious is it? Yeah. All right, so that rounds out top nine. Let's go on to number ten. Yeah. I think this one's pretty simple, actually. <laughs> How long does alcohol stay in your system? <laughs> uh, until the next day when you have a greasy cheeseburger and fries. <laughs> and then it should be purged. Well... I mean, that, that does bring up an interesting point yeah. um, because we've done a podcast on alcohol yeah. and definitely your food intake will affect the way that you metabolize alcohol. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but how long generally does alcohol stay in your system? I mean, it, really, the old school science about your body can process about one drink an hour, Yeah, that, that actually holds. 
Yeah. So, but again, it can be it can be influenced by other factors. As far as like you said, have you eat re- have you eaten recently? What did you eat? Mm-hmm. Your body weight. What kind of alcohol? Yep. Your, your body, body composition. Weight, yep. Yeah. Your level of fitness, all that kind of stuff. Whether you party. <laughs> yeah. Whether you party. Yeah, what are, frat are you a part of? Are you conditioned <laughs> to party? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you experienced? <laughs> are you about this life? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, how long does alcohol stay in your system? Really not, I mean, yes, we've done a podcast on this, but not not really a question that is inside our podcast scope of does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to answer the question, you can process about one drink per hour yeah. generically. But yeah, there are a lot of different variables. Yeah. So those are the top 2019 questions in the United States. You guys got any closing comments? Uh, it's a new year. It's a great opportunity to kind of get your goals in gear and uh, in line with what you want. So, you know, fresh start. So uh, put them together. And uh, is there, yeah, contact uh, Dr. Hector or Dr. Dan. Let them know what your goals are and maybe they can help you out. You know what? And I'm going <laughs> to say this. If you call, if you contact Dr. Hector, right now, he'll give you one free hour of primal health coaching. <laughs> if you mention the podcast. Yeah, mention the podcast. I'll definitely do that. We'll, yeah. we'll sit down, um, maybe in remote locations from each other on the phone. Yeah. But uh, I'm willing to do that um, because, you know, um, basically that first hour is basically going to be where, where we find out if we're a good fit for each other, if, uh, if I think I can help you, or if I think that I need to refer you to somebody else. Or if I need to tell you, well, you're you're just not in the right spot yet for it mentally. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's that's worth an hour of my time to figure out if I can help you out. And Dr. Dan? Yeah. <laughs> if you're experiencing any kind of pain or you need any uh you need some sort of injury recovery, uh Dr. Dan is uh trained in kinesiotaping and <laughs> make that sound like that's the most important skill that <laughs> yeah, he has well, I'm, yeah. trying, I'm trying to listen to my head and that's the last certification <laughs> I remember that he had put it another way like I love being on this podcast and just discussing all aspects of like health and human performance but at the end of the day my specialty is musculoskeletal issues yeah uh, that's the thing I want to say and it, <laughs> I say musculoskeletal issues but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clarify that and say neural musculoskeletal issues because I had a couple situations over this last year in 2019 where I had patients come to me with legit neurologic issues. Mm-hmm. We're talking about like neuropathy, myelopathy, radiculopathy, which if you have those, you probably know what they are. Yeah. And doing what I did helped them a lot more than any other specialty did that they'd been to neurology, orthopedics, physiology, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yeah, biomechanics account for a lot and biomechanics rule cell physiology in a lot of cases. So come and see me if you're unwell and let's talk about how your biomechanics may be playing a role in that and I can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Dr. But Hector, if they want to reach you. If you guys want to reach me, go to www.absolutioncrossfit.com. All the contact information goes to me. So the, the cell number that's on there is our business number. That's my number. Um, you can call me. Uh, you're probably going to have to leave me a voicemail. But you can text me at that same number uh, and we can set up an actual call. Um, the the email us address will go right to me. It's info at absolutioncrossfit.com. You can find me on social media. I'm uh, the.mighty.hector on Instagram and also on Snapchat. I'm on Facebook as the Mighty Hector. Hmm. Um, so you can find me on those three social media platforms. Um, I'm on TikTok, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of looked at it and I, I just haven't gone back on. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, go to absolutioncrossfit.com. Because you're not a high school girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to make friends with them, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, go to AbsolutionCrossFit.com. All my contact info is on there. If you're in LaGrange, Illinois, or near there, um, we could probably get together, and um, I can definitely help you. Yeah. And Dr. Dan? Speaking of TikTok, <laughs> I'm also now on TikTok at, uh, at Dr. Davila DC number one. That's D-R-D-A-V-I-L-A-D-C number one. Uh, you can also look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Davila DC. No number one on those platforms. Uh, hit me up with any questions you have. Let me know what I might be able to help you out with, and I'll do my best to get back to you as soon as possible. Can we see you doing a bunch of like lip syncing songs and stuff like that? I don't know how to use the app properly because <laughs> like all my stuff is basically just like I took stuff that I'm already doing and just put like songs over it. Nice. I'm to like the, to uh, the song Nelly number one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I basically have like a bunch of like workout clips with like heavy metal over them. Nice. My most popular uh, TikTok to date was actually funny enough. It was actually me doing squats with the Pantera song Uplift playing, <laughs> up, playing over it. Yeah. That got a ridiculous number of hits, and I was like, really? <laughs> when you say ridiculous, what are we talking about? 15? I'm talking like 752. Wow. wow. I think yeah. that beats me. Yeah. 752 views, like 12 likes, and like a couple comments. You're I was too like, big for this podcast at this point. Yeah. Time. <laughs> I was like, oh, I just reached my TikTok peak. To be fair, <laughs> I'm older than Dr. Dan, so I'm becoming less relevant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> all right great podcast guys all right that's, a, that's another episode of the viable human project catch us next week later bye-bye lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details